Well, good evening, everybody. It's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mirror, Alberta. All by myself tonight. Yep, no carry. Unfortunately, he's busy doing carry things. Probably like karaoke. Anyway, uh, I wanted to do a live this morning, and uh, it's been a really busy day. I didn't really get a chance to stop at all today. It's been go, go, go. But some pretty cool stuff in the works. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to show it to you guys tomorrow. So the reason I wanted to do a live was because I, I've been getting like just a crazy amount of messages and, and comments and questions about uh, what's going on in Alberta right now. Some pretty cool things happening. Uh, and I get a lot of the same questions over and over again. And I figured I would uh, take some time this morning to answer your questions. So this is my morning live at 10 p.m. <clears throat> uh, before I get going, I want to I want to clarify something that I said a few days ago. Do you remember my rant that I had? I did a little rant. It was a Chris is pissed off at a bunch of stuff, and he's quit smoking little cigars, so now he's going to go a rant, rant. Yeah. Anyway, one of the things I said during that live uh, was that I don't really care who does it as long as we get a referendum on independence on the table in Alberta here. And I partially meant that. But I always, when I say that, I always mention the NDP. I think mostly for shock value. Mostly so people say, well, why the heck would Chris say that he doesn't care if it's an NDP government? Well, the truth is I do, actually. Um because what we saw in the last election where the NDP um, made government here in Alberta, it was a disaster, like an absolute disaster. We're still paying for it. Um, I now literally roll coal on my picker truck. Uh, there was a couple guys hauling loads of coal, stopped into the whistle stop today, and they gave me a lump of coal for Christmas. So now I keep that on my picker truck as a reminder of what, Rachel Notley and the No Damn Pipelines party did to our province. Um, the destruction was, I mean, we haven't seen that sort of destruction at least, at least in my lifetime. So I do care who makes government. And the reason is, even if we get a referendum on the table and, and it happens, uh, it's going to take a very responsible, a very uh, sharp and fierce government uh, to do what needs to be done with it in order to, you know, get us a better deal. So most of you have already heard me say the reason I want to see this referendum on independence is because I want our government to have leverage in dealing with the federal government trying to make things better for Alberta, which, I mean, it's obvious that we need. And if you wonder why we need that, uh, please take a moment to go and pick up a book by Michael Wagner, um, he's actually got a couple books on Western independence, and I would encourage you to uh, just Google Michael, Michael Wagner books, and it doesn't really matter which one you pick, just pick one and read it. And he lays it out very, very well why Alberta needs this type of change. So that's the first thing. Uh, and I do want to thank my buddy Art for pointing that out. Uh, he pointed out that I should probably clear up um, my comment about the NDP. Because there is another part of this, and that is that we need a responsible government 
who's willing to stand up for Alberta, not one that's whole goal is to destroy Alberta and throw us to the wolves. Anyway, what's next? Um, I mentioned this morning that we had uh, bison stew for a special today. One of my dogs is outside barking her head off. She goes out the cat door and then can't get back in. So I think she's going to stay outside as punishment. It's not that cold. Anyway, we have bison stew. We have a lot of bison in the restaurant right now. And you might be wondering why would we have a bunch of bison meat at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mira, Alberta. So I'm going to tell you a story about uh, a man that I met throughout this whole thing who came to be my friend, and he's no longer with us. His name was Armin Mueller. So in the height of all the, you know, the frenzy that was going on at the Whistle Stop, it was crazy busy, there was police there, you know, we were open against restrictions and all this stuff. Armin phoned me and he said in a very, very thick Swiss accent, by the way, that he wanted to help out and do something to help us get through this. And he was talking about bison burgers and, and uh, you know, a boutique butcher shop and stuff like that. And I, I said, yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll call them when I get a moment. I, I didn't actually for quite a while. But he, he phoned me again in about a month and he reminded me. And so I, I got talking to him and <clears throat> his story was really interesting. Um, I'll share a little bit of it with you. So Armin immigrated to Canada in the 70s, and he really didn't have much. Uh, just a young man with a dream of being free and prosperous. Moved to Canada, and of all things, he started a dairy farm. He did very well. He worked hard, uh, made good money on, with the dairy farm. Uh, it was great. He contributed greatly to Alberta and Canada. Um, and then he sold his dairy farm, and he got into uh, bison ranching. And he was very successful at that as well. He not only did he get into bison ranching, but he uh, built or was part of building a world-class uh, meat processing facility that shipped meat all over the world. Did very well. And a lot of people were better off for being around Armin or knowing him, myself included. So anyway, by the time I met Armin, um, he had had cancer for, I think, 17 years. Now, I might, be, I might be wrong there, but I think it was about 17 years. And I didn't know it at the time, but when I met Armin, he was actually stage four and kind of end of his days. He didn't talk about that. Uh, we had lots of conversations about the state of the country and, what, and why he wanted to help me and, and what he wanted to see for this country. I mean, he came to Canada for very specific reasons and that he wanted to be free to prosper. And Switzerland, as he described, is very, very, there's a lot of rules, a ton of rules. Like, it's a great place, but it's certainly not perfect. And it's, you know, getting, it's so socialist that it's very hard to actually prosper there. So he wanted to prosper in Canada. And in the last couple of years, three years or so, it, it broke his heart what he saw happening to our province and our country. So when I took my stand against the restrictions and against what the government was doing, he wanted to help and help he did. So we had lots of conversations about that. His, his one comment that he made a lot was uh, that he, he wasn't a young man anymore and he wished that he had the energy that I did so that he could kick the government's ass and fix things and save the country that he worked so hard uh, to come to in order to be prosperous. 
for him and his family and and every Canadian. Like that's what he wanted to do as a service to the people of this country. And I reminded him that, uh, you know, people like him who have been very successful in their life, um, supporting people like me who have the energy and the youth to do these things are every bit as important because if, if they weren't there, uh, people like me would be, I mean, we would be sunk if it wasn't for people like Armin and, and his uh, lovely wife and organizations like the Democracy Fund and, uh, you know, good lawyers like Chad, Chad Williamson of Williamson Law and my criminal defense lawyer, uh, Yoav Niv. If it wasn't for these people, anyone who stands up against the government wouldn't even have a chance. So I've been very fortunate in that a lot of people uh, have have offered their support to me so that I could continue on. People often ask me, uh, well, how do I do what I do? Like, it's, it's so much work and there's, you know, it's so much stress and this and that. And the reality is I, I couldn't do any of this stuff alone. It's uh, the sum result of those around me who participate and do everything they can, do their part, including people like Armin, who maybe, you know, don't have many days left, but they want to use their final days uh, to do something effective. And actually, that's one of the last conversations I had with him. I reminded him of that, and and I think he, I think that made him made him feel quite a bit better. But uh, yeah, it was kind of strange. Um, part of the reason why I've been a little bit absent lately is because I've been there's things that have happened that have reminded me of the that we don't escape life alive. Mortality has really been weighing heavily on me. I mean, one day Armin was in the restaurant having fish and chips and having a conversation and we we're planning our next meeting. And then, you know, the next, next minute, about a week later, um, I'd been trying to get out there to visit him and I was too busy, too busy all the time, too busy. And then he's gone. Same thing happened with my friend Char from Char's Railway Cafe in Smith, Alberta. Um, Char has been, well, was sick for a long, long time. Um, you know, she, wonderful lady, <laughs> bullheaded, um, smart, caring, like just, I didn't get to know her very well, but from what I know of Char, she was, she was an amazing person. But she had a, battle with uh she had a battle with the bottle and it's no secret and uh in the end it it, it took her um she she was sick and she just she phoned me a few times actually actually quite a few times and eventually i stopped answering the phone because partly because i was busy and partly because, <clears throat> I'm almost ashamed to say it, but I was worried that she wasn't going to be sober when she was talking to me. So I didn't answer the phone. Kind of a dick move. Uh, but I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Anyway, I had been thinking about Char for weeks. And uh, one of my customers, a good friend of hers, um, we had some conversations about her. And I kept saying, you know, I got to call her. I got to get up there and visit her because she always takes the time to call me and you know, she just, she always telling me how much she supports me and, and she's proud of what I'm doing. I got to call her, but I didn't. And then next thing you know, she's gone. 
I, I can't go see her anymore. She died. So this whole idea of mortality and what we do when we're alive has been very heavy on my shoulders. And I don't know, maybe it's a midlife crisis thing or something like that, but I think about it all the time. There's a lot of people in our lives that we take for granted. Um, we don't take the time to, out of our busy days, to drop them a line and tell them that, you know, we're thinking about them or you know, wish them well or something like that. And then all of a the sudden they're gone. And it might not even be the result of cancer or, um, you know, maybe some more self-inflicted things. Maybe it's just someone's going to the store and they never come home. You know, you never know. You never know when this is going to happen. And if you think about that enough, and then you put it in context of what we've seen over the last three years in our lives, and specifically now what we're seeing with the continued division and, and infighting and, uh, you know, political bickering, how much of it really matters? Well, in the end, nothing matters. There's only one thing that matters, and I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, so that so I believe that in the end, the only thing that matters is you know, our relationship with, with God. That's it. Not saying that I'm perfect. I certainly have a lot of stuff to answer for. Um, but really, none of this stuff matters. I suppose what matters the most out of nothing really matters is our relationships with each other. And that's a tough pill to swallow because right now, most of us are mad at other people for some reason. Most of us are frustrated with other people. Most of us, um, we either see someone, let's use this example because, I mean, nobody knows about this, right? Some people see someone wearing a mask and they want to taunt them or make fun of them. Some people see others not wearing a mask and they want to scream at them and and chastise them for, for risking their lives. You know, we everybody's mad at somebody for some reason. It's a really weird time. And I don't really know what to do with it at all, except for continue blabbering on and sharing my thoughts. And maybe somebody will uh, um, chime in and give me some magical wisdom that I, I can take to heart and it'll change my life. Anyway, enough about that stuff. I'm not a philosopher. I'm a rig hand. Uh, I'm a cook. I am a, a father, albeit not a real great one, kind of an absent father lately, but I do love my kids. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about some of the questions that I've been getting. And first and foremost, of course, is what do you think of Danielle Smith? What is your opinion of Danielle Smith? What do you think of the new premier? Did you hear what the new premier said? Did you see the new premier's interview with Jordan Peterson? Yes. I saw it. I liked it. I like the things she says. She says a lot of great things. Um, she's done a couple good things, but it always seems like it's never good enough for anybody. And I understand that because emotions are running high. And as I said, we're all mad at somebody for something, right? So what are the things that our premier has done in the last little while? Well, she fired the, the board of AHS as she said she would. Uh, she appointed a, how, how did that work? She appointed a commissioner, uh, to make decisions and deal with AHS in order to have the things that need to be done 
done fast. You don't want a board to do that. You want one person that you can say, this is what we're going to do. This is the direction we're going. This is how we're going to fix it. And it's done like that. So she's done that. Um, we had a conversation with Dr. William Mackis a little while ago, and he mentioned that maybe the board of the AHS is not really, I mean, yeah, sure, fire them because they didn't do a good job, but there's more to it than that. So I'm hoping that our premier goes deeper than that and finds the root cause of the problems we're seeing in our healthcare and deals deals with it because from the sounds of it, there's a lot more people that need to be fired. Uh, we also did an interview recently with Mr. Don Sharp. He is a uh, uh, a veteran EMS first responder. And the guy's got some stories that would absolutely blow your mind, but also some very good ideas, which happen to be uh, some of them implemented two days after Carrie and I interviewed him. So that interview will be coming out uh, this Sunday, I believe. Right, Carrie? Carrie says yes. So she's done a few interesting things. Um, Another one that has been mentioned is she fired Dean Henshaw. Great. Henshaw, Kenny should have fired Henshaw. Why Jason Kenny would leave one of Rachel Notley's buddies in a position like that with the opportunity to do the damage and destruction she did to the province is beyond me. You know, our government is one thing, but the bureaucrats who, who stay from government to government, they're the ones that can make real differences and real damage or benefits because they're there all the time. The government gets changed and the government gets changed, whatever. But the bureaucrats that are always there, they're there. We don't elect them. They're not accountable to us. Uh, so if our government doesn't keep them accountable, nobody does. Anyway, fired Henshaw and replaced her. Pardon me. Didn't replace her. She installed an interim CMOH until such time that she gets the advisory board and uh, uh, put put in place and selects the new CMOH. So this actually ties in with something else I wanted to talk about, which is this uh, division and infighting that I mentioned earlier. Uh, a lot of my friends, they will say things like, well, Daniel Smith is no different than everybody else because look at what she just did. She fired Dana Hinshaw and put in somebody who's just like her. Well, back up a little bit. Let's let's look at this uh, logically. So Daniel Smith said she was going to um, not take Dean Hinshaw's advice. I don't believe she ever said she was actually going to fire her, but now she's fired. And there's an interim CMOH. The reason there's an interim COH, CMOH, Chief Medical Officer of Health, is because it takes time to select the proper candidate. Now, the guy who is uh, acting as the CMOH right now, I'm not a super big fan because he's, you know, wears... Superman shirts and tells people to uh, do something to them that is not going to help them, not going to do what's advertised and may harm them. I'm not a fan of that. But Daniel Smith has not replaced Dina Hinshaw with, uh, oh, what the heck is his name? Someone put his name up. I can't remember now. But he's an intern. He is not the replacement. So when people say things like, Daniel Smith is no different because of this. Pay attention to what they're saying and be okay with correcting them when they when they uh, misinterpret something that's happened. I'm not happy with everything that goes on with the government, but there's plenty that we can complain about and, and demand change without 
uh, twisting things and making them seem as as something they're not, which this interim CMOH uh, falls into that category. So I guess that brings up something else. And I see that my, uh, ah, yes, Joffe, Mark Joffe. That's the name of the interim CMOH. And I'm hoping he gets replaced very quickly. I'm very excited from what the Premier has told me about her advisory panel. I want those names out. I want people to know who it is. And I want some good uh, changes being made for this province. And I want them put on a path to health and wellness. So when that panel shows up, when the panel's named and when it's put in place, that's going to start happening. So it can happen soon enough. Anyway, um, speaking of my friends saying things. So my, I see my friend Lloyd is on and my friend Shelly is on and a couple others that may be aware of what I'm about to say. So <clears throat> I've been involved with a group called the Alberta Prosperity Project for, uh, well, since its inception. Actually, I, I was originally involved with a group called the Alberta Unity Project, which ended up, long story short, there was a very big difference of opinion with some of the board. Uh, one group wanted to go one direction, one group wanted to go the other direction. In the end, they chose to part ways, um, changed the name, and continued on with the mandate to educate Albertans as to the merits, benefits, and necessity of an independence referendum. So I've been involved with that because I came to realize that a lot of the things we're fighting for are not attainable uh, under the current structure of the federal government in Canada. And going further than that, once you dig into it, you, you quickly realize that it was set up this way from the start. Alberta, uh, the reason why the East wanted Alberta within Confederation is because they wanted their resources. The East wanted the resources and the riches and the wealth of the West to be brought to the East to build up their factories and increase their prosperity in the East. That's what Alberta and Saskatchewan, B.C. were. They were, they were viewed as, um, well, if you've seen the cartoon where, where the East is milking the West, that's very accurate. That's what it was. Uh, the East wanted our resources. So from the very beginning, we never really had a fair shake within Confederation. I mean, you can look at this in uh, how we're represented in the Senate, how we're represented in the House of Commons, how we're represented in the Supreme Court, uh, all of these things. And then if you put that in the context uh, of what's or, or put what's happened to Alberta in the, in the last say 30 years in that context, you understand that the federal government can and will do things to Alberta and Saskatchewan and British Columbia and Manitoba and whatever province they want. They will do things that are unconstitutional. They will take powers and encroach on areas where Alberta is sovereign. Now, that word sovereign is almost seen as a dirty word these days, but it's not. I want to remind everybody that's watching. Uh, Canada was supposed to be a confederation. And you will hear our politicians referring to the Federation of Canada as of late. They're incorrect. Canada is not a federation. Canada is a confederation. Now, a confederation means... Basically, it is against federation. It is not a federation. A federation is a group of member states 
that don't have sovereignty over their own affairs. The federal government does. The, uh, uh, they're, they're federated. That means they take their, uh, they take their orders from a central power. A confederation is entirely the opposite. A confederation is a group of member states that maintain sovereignty over an agreed upon uh, a set of um, issues. And with the provinces, for example, uh, we are we hold sovereignty over our resources and resource development, uh, the administration of healthcare. Uh, what else? Uh, things like roads and that, except for federal you know, federal stuff, uh, th then the federal government is responsible for things like international trade deals, um, military, building a military and maintaining it, those sorts of things. And when either party encroaches on the other one's constitutional boundaries, we have a problem. So Justin Trudeau says, sorry, Alberta, you can't develop your resources. And he makes uh, legislation that makes it impossible for us to build pipelines and makes it impossible for us to even get a tanker uh, off the coast so that we can ship our product overseas. He is interfering with our developing uh, development of our natural resources in our province. And then it becomes the responsibility of the province of Alberta to go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, uh, the federal government did this and we don't, this isn't right. It's not constitutional. They are encroaching on our constitutional sovereignties. And the federal, uh, the, the Supreme Court, as I said before, that we're not represented in, can say and will say things like, oh, I'm sorry, Alberta, but uh, the federal government says we have this prob problem of climate change, so therefore your constitutional rights will not be upheld. And what do we do? We can't do anything. We can't change anything. We're underrepresented, both ideologically and literally in the House of Commons. We're different. We're different here than they are in the West, in the East. So that's a problem. And for me, <clears throat> I understand, I know all too well, that the only leverage we can have, possibly have, to encourage the federal government to leave us the hell alone and stay out of our constitutional jurisdictions is a referendum on independence. So we can say, listen, we'd are happy to remain in this confederation and be unified with the rest of uh, the, the, the member states. But we demand that the federal government respect the constitution and our constitutional rights or else. The federal government has two options. They agree to abide by the rules that we, we all agreed to be governed by or they don't, and we, we walk away and, and, and do it on our own. It's really quite simple. So you can see how this becomes the overarching uh, big issue, at least in my opinion. Much bigger than my restaurant being chained shut. Uh, much, much bigger than going to jail for protesting. Uh, it, it's much bigger than those things for me. So I'm involved with the Alberta Prosperity Project. I've also been involved with some independence-minded parties. I'm also a member of the current government, the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Um, I happen to have conversations with the premier about some of these things. Not lately, but in the in you know I did from time to time. Um, so you might say that I have friends on all sides of the fence. 
Uh, and I'm in a very unique position that way. I can have a conversation with the premier and then I can go and have a conversation with somebody who is quite against the premier. And because I know them both on a more personal level, uh, I can form an opinion that maybe other people might have, a, uh, they might not have the, the same insight to, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but to me, they're all human beings. They're not just talking heads, all these people. So when I heard that uh, some of my friends within the Alberta Prosperity Project were being, what's the word? Misrepresented. It really bothered me. Because I know these people, specifically Dennis Modry, Dr. Dennis Modry. Um, I have the privilege of being able to phone Dennis and talk to him whenever I want. He answers the phone. He is quite human. He is quite humble. And we discuss things in detail that uh, I never thought I'd get to talk to someone like him about. So you might say that he's not only uh, a professional um, acquaintance of mine, but he's become a friend. I have friends in the Independence Party as well. Uh, one of them is named Archer Pulowski, a man who I've uh, really come to respect and admire for his tenacity and his determination and his uh, never-ending desire to call out tyrants when he sees them. I love it. I think he's great. We don't agree on everything. Um, we don't have the same theological uh, um, ideas or ideologies from time to time, but we're, we've become friends nonetheless. So I started hearing some things coming my way, uh, people who are my friends saying things like, don't trust this person or that person because of this. And I thought, well, that's strange. I know these people and this is not the case. And I thought, well, you know, this will just blow over. How bad could this get? But then it got worse. Then I saw something that Albertans had started to build, losing ground and losing momentum. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? And then finally, somebody let the cat out of the bag. Somebody had been going around and telling people uh, at events that I was speaking at, by the way, that this organization that I was advocating for was corrupt. And the narrative went something like this. Uh, the Alberta Prosperity Project, I, hey, Trevor, how's it going? I, I know for certain that they're receiving $2 million a month and they're lining the pockets of the board and all these people are getting rich and they won't help out the chapters. They won't help up, help out the, the chapter leaders and, and help in developing them. They're making them raise their own funds and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, that's strange. I never heard about $2 million. And this went on for some time and finally it came to a boiling point to the point where people were messaging me and basically saying, you know, they don't want to talk to me anymore if I had anything to do with the Alberta Prosperity Project. So I started asking questions. Since then, I've had conversations with uh, with with some of the board, uh, with Dr. Modry. I've actually seen the financials of the Alberta Prosperity Project. And I can guarantee you that that whole narrative that the Alberta Prosperity Project had been getting $2 million a month and, and people getting rich off it was a complete lie. 100%. And I will stake my reputation on it. And if you 
you know, if you have questions about that, I'll do my best to answer them because I'm not shy in asking any of the people accused of these things, these questions straight to their face. And I will sit there and I will talk to them for hours to determine um, if they're trying to pull a fast one or if they're genuine. And in this case, they're genuine. The people involved with that project, uh, some are paid for certain things because they do work. And if you're doing work and that's the only work you're doing, you deserve to be paid for it. I have no problem with that. Uh, and that's no secret. But for the most part, it's all volunteers. Everybody. Even some of the people in senior management positions are volunteers. They do this because, well, maybe they're in a, a good financial situation and they, they can they can just do it. They do it because they want to see something better for this province. So there you have it. There was a big lie that went out there and it caused a lot of friction between my friends and myself. And I certainly don't appreciate that kind of stuff. Another thing that I've been hearing is, uh, Trevor, if you want to know the specials tomorrow, you'll have to check out the Facebook page because Ken's going to post them. And I'll see you on December 3rd, I think. Uh, another thing that I've been hearing a lot is that uh, the Alberta Prosperity Project is a third-party advertiser for the UCP. That's also a lie. Uh, because of what the Alberta Prosperity Project is doing, um, they have to be politically unbiased. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't have conversations with uh, different political parties, different groups, extend them invitations to talk or have debates or forums. That is necessary, not only to um, find out what they want to do, but to present those ideas to the group. And this group is the Alberta Prosperity Project membership who want to see an independence referendum. So say, for example, the NEP is invited to speak at an event. Well, you're going to find out very quickly that they're not aligned with what the APP is talking about at all. Um, if the Independence Party of Alberta has a event or speaks at a, an Alberta Prosperity Project forum, you'll probably find out that they're very much aligned with what the Alberta Prosperity Project is, is advocating for. And same with the UCP. We saw that there was a UCP forum hosted by APP. And what we saw there was that some candidates are actually uh, receptive to what we're saying. And certainly not all the way, certainly not uh, like the folks in the Independence Party of Alberta. But what we saw was that there were people within government or people who wanted to be government that were talking about the ideas that APP was presenting. And that's a win. That's a huge win for me. And we continue to have some wins. Most of them are talking wins. But I guess time will tell if uh, the, the talk is backed up by the wall. We're going to find out very shortly. We're going to see when uh, when Premier Smith starts making changes to AHS. Uh, we're probably going to know very quickly if it's going to be effective because there's a lot of people with a lot of really good ideas. Uh, people who have had these ideas for years, by the way, who, but have been silenced because the power structure and the way things were set up 
uh, was not designed for people to speak out. And if you don't believe me about that, just ask Dr. William Mackis or uh, Dr. Daniel Nagasi what happens when you speak up against the AHS power structure. But that's changing. <clears throat> AHS is Alberta Health Services, my best friends. Speaking of which, I'll be back in court with Alberta Health Services on January 16th. January 16th to 18th. Um, my trial was interrupted because it came to light that there was a lot of stuff that my lawyers should have seen before the trial. So they asked for all that. AHS, Alberta Health Services obliged. Uh, my lawyers saw the stuff and we all smiled and were excited to go back to court. In other news on that front, um, there have been rulings. There are a ruling in the court of King's Bench that Dina Hinshaw's orders relating to the pandemic were illegal. Isn't that hilarious? Remember when we said that two and a half years ago, that these orders are not legal? This is not going to hold up in court? Well, there was, a, there was a ruling that, yes, Dina Hinshaw's orders were illegal. Yes, you heard that right. I'll say it again. There is a ruling. There is a precedent set from a judge in the court of King's Bench that Dina Hinshaw's orders were unlawful. Now, what does that mean for people like me? I don't know. Who knows? What does that mean for people like uh, Archibaldowski? I don't know. Time will tell. But I can tell you this much. I'm not interested in amnesty for me. But I might consider giving my oppressors, uh, offering them amnesty if they, if they come groveling to me. No, I'm not going to do that. Just kidding. Anyway, we are seeing some wins. Uh, there's some positive things going on. And I'm involved in a, a few different groups. And it's very difficult to, to, to get, how do I say this? It's very difficult to get people to understand that even if things aren't going exactly the way they think they should, we are still making some headway. And there is the other side of this argument that we don't have much time. There's some pretty scary stuff coming down the pipeline for us. And that is true. But really, we don't have much for options besides doing what we can do now and being prepared for what comes later. So I would certainly encourage that. If you haven't gotten involved in anything uh, yet, you may want to consider doing that. Go No, you, you, you definitely do want to. Go to an Alberta Prosperity Project meeting. Listen to what they have to say. Go watch that movie, Ungovernable. It's not perfect. I don't agree with everything. But it gives you a bit of a feel of why this is going on. It ties a lot of things together. Now, you might be sitting at home saying, well, what are you talking about? What are you worried about? The restrictions are over. Yes, the restrictions are mostly over, but did you know that they're not over? They're not, 100%. Still happening. We still can't cross the border. And you're right, yes, that's the U.S. But when it comes to policy, the U.S. and Canada, are we're very, very similar. We're very kind of aligned with this kind of thing. We still have organizations and groups within Canada that demand these things. Uh, a friend of mine was recently uh, given a casting call for a film, and or pardon me, a series. And the very first thing that that casting call said was, 
the production demands that you are triple vaccinated in order to be on the set. That doesn't sound lawful to me, but it's happening. Uh, there are four men in jail right now, two in Calgary, one in Lethbridge, and one in, oh boy, maybe it's Edmonton. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. They're in jail. They've been in jail now for 10 months with no trial and will not be granted bail. These things are still happening. The number one cause of death is still unknown. We still have people dropping, dying suddenly. We still have children uh, being harmed. Weird things happening to kids that don't usually happen. Nobody can figure it out. Nobody can is, is willing to, you know, put their nuts on the table and ask the question. Because if you talk about these things, you get canceled, right? Too busy canceling political opponents um, to worry about children who are dying. That's cool. Not. Anyway, um, how things look, how things appear may be different. I mean, I'm not, my restaurant's not chained shut. We don't have pastors getting dragged down the highway arrested. But there's still some really nasty stuff going on. And nothing has changed. Um, if the government decided to do this again tomorrow, they could do it again. The mechanism's still there. Nobody's been held accountable for anything. Uh, the conversation hasn't even really been started. The questions have been asked, but nobody's come to the table and answered them. So there's a lot to do. There's a lot going on. And I think it's high time that we stop playing politics and bashing people because they're not 100% aligned with you. And we start figuring out how to work together. One of the most difficult lessons that I've learned over the last three years was that uh, the NDP and the liberals, socialism are not conservatives' worst enemies. Conservatives are. And going even further than that, Probably our own, um, our own view of the world in that we have to be either a conservative or a liberal or, uh, you know, whatever, or communist, and we, there can't be anything in between. And we all have to be in these little boxes where we only, uh, we, we have to agree on all these things. Otherwise, we can't be part of the group. Th that whole idea is exactly why we're where we are right now. That's why we had an NDP government. Uh, pardon me. I don't think that is. I think we had an NDP government because people were really, really pissed off. But that's why we're seeing elections go 49 to 51%. A split right down the middle. I really think that that's the way some people want it to be. Because if we're too busy worrying about uh, our NDP friends not being our friends because they have different ideas than us, we're, we're too busy fighting them and bashing them. Well, what could creep up behind us without us knowing it? We are distracted and divided and a house divided cannot stand. So I don't know, maybe it's supposed to be like that. 
but it shouldn't have to be. There was a time when uh, you could talk about politics and you could you could be on a, in a different political party or have a different idea about how the you know your jurisdiction jurisdiction should be governed, and you could still go and have backyard barbecue and beers, and you you didn't hate each other for it, but that's not the way it is now. And I think part of the reason for that is because people are scared. They're very scared. If you, if you, uh, let's pick something really controversial. Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Vaccines. I guess that's controversial now, isn't it? If you have a differing opinion than someone on that, well, you maybe, you know, maybe they think you're stupid. I've seen it from both sides. Um, um, and, oh, okay. Energy. That's a great one. People are divided about energy. Literally what allows us to flourish as human beings, allows us to have lives, people are divided on whether it's good or bad. I watched, I, I don't know, would you call it a debate? It was Trump and Biden, so you can imagine how that went. But Joe Biden was basically saying, President Biden was basically saying, we have to stop giving oil companies subsidies. We have to stop using fossil fuels because fossil fuels and energy and oil is a, and they're big polluters. And I don't, what did I have for breakfast? And and we got to stop subsidizing federal subs, federal subsidizing the oil industry subsidies. We got to stop, stop no more doing that. And, and we have to move to wind and solar that don't get subsidies. So at that point, my head explodes, um, kind of yelling at the screen. And in comes Trump with his angelic, sarcastic voice that we all love so much. And he says, well, actually, wind and solar are the most heavily subsidized industries in America. And in Canada, too. If it wasn't for subsidies, wind and solar wouldn't exist. There is no business plan where wind and solar is a sustainable investment for anybody. Period. There isn't. Um, these so-called subsidies that energy, uh, uh, fossil fuel exploration oil and gas companies get are not subsidies so much as they are existing corporate tax law that's available to, available to every business. And I, I get a kick out of this when, you know, I spent a few years working in the oil patch in Wabasca, Alberta. Um, Wabasca is, it's half MD and half reserve. And that area wouldn't have very much were it not for the energy industry. I mean, they have a world-class um, facility. It's like a, I mean, they got a, you know, it's like a basketball court and a track and a pool and, all sorts of cool stuff in this big, huge building that does is not, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's way out of place in Wabasco, Alberta, or it used to be. I mean, Wabasco has grown quite a bit, but anyway, but my point is my kids still talk about that place and they want to go back to Wabasco, Alberta, because they want to go to that rec facility that was built by these oil and gas companies who are so evil because they take advantage of corporate tax structures. I mean, we have the Collicut Center in Red Deer. Um, all over Alberta, there's billions of dollars, billions of dollars 
injected into our lives by these very companies that people are so quick to condemn. Because somebody at some point convinced people that carbon dioxide is pollution. If you went to school, you learned that carbon dioxide is what plants eat. It literally is what plants eat. And the world is convinced that carbon dioxide is evil. No, actually, not even that. The world is convinced that carbon is evil. We are carbon-based life forms who exist and flourish because of carbon-based energy sources. We breathe, we exhale uh, a carbon-based gas that plants eat and then nourish us. And yet, people have been convinced that carbon is pollution. It's wild. I recently attended an Alex Epstein event that was hosted by the Alberta Prosperity Project in uh, Calgary. And what a great event. Uh, Alex even was so kind as to send me a copy of his book entitled Fossil Futures. And I haven't read it yet. I've read the preface, so I'm getting there. Uh, but basically, what Alex is saying is truth and logic and reason. Human beings are flourishing right now because of fossil fuels. We have the ability to do things or, or, or use machines to do work for us and free our time up to do amazing things like advancements in medicine or, you know, mastering the climate, um, inhabiting areas that we couldn't normally inhabit without the machines that we use to make it better to live in. Uh, and the way he lays it out, I, I don't know how anybody could possibly disagree with um, we need more fossil fuels, not less. And yet society still believes people who tell them that the only way we're going to survive is if you buy an electric car and you don't burn any fossil fuels anymore. And don't ask where the power to charge your electric car comes from. Don't ask if the power grid can handle that many electric cars because we don't like the answer. So we're not going to tell you, but just listen to us because we know what's best. Well, they don't know what's best. They know what lines their pockets the best. We've been seeing it for years. It's right out in front of us. They don't even hide it. And if anybody can't see that the narrative that's been shoved down our throats for the last 30 years uh, is not to our benefit, I don't know how to help them now. I really don't. Maybe some people can't be helped. Anyway, I think I got really, really off topic there. I don't even remember what I was planning on talking about during this live. I think it had something to do with a picker truck. I don't know. Picker truck's in getting a new starter. Yeah, that sucks. There was something else, so let me think. What was it? Well, somebody said there's no such thing as climate change, and that is not true. There is such a thing as climate change. Um, the question is, is the change we see in the climate, specifically 
the one degree change in temperature? Is that apocalyptic or is it beneficial? And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's beneficial. Actually, that is what I wanted to mention. Do you remember that whole uh, series that David Suzuki did called The Tipping Point? Basically, he said, uh, if we go too far, eventually we can't recover. If we get this level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, um, we can't stop it and it's going to snowball out of control. The Earth's going to light on fire. Remember Al Gore saying that by 2016, the Earth will be on fire? Or it'll be so hot, there'll be fires everywhere. The Earth's going to burn down if we don't stop what we're doing. Al Gore said that. It was in the early 2000s and the forecasted date was 2016. It never happened. As a matter of fact, none of the apop apocalyptic climate change uh, fear-mongering scenarios have ever come true because they're all bullshit. So that idea of a tipping point is false. And you can look this up yourself, but uh, Alex Epstein, actually, energytalkingpoints.com. Check that out. This is where a lot of this information is. And in that uh, site, you're going to find a graph. And the graph shows how carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere affect temperature. It's not a straight line. It's not a hockey stick. It's a plateau. It goes up and up and up and up and up. And eventually it flattens off and flatlines. And the more carbon dioxide you put into the atmosphere, it doesn't raise the temperature. And I don't know how that study was done. So don't ask me. I don't know anything about it. But if you want to find it, go to energytalkpoints.com. Uh, if you check it out and you disagree with how it's done, please send a message to Alex Epstein. And he will very likely return your message because believe it or not, he does that. Anyway, um, if you if you take the time to go to energytalkingpoints.com, read read Alex Epstein's book, uh, and and maybe maybe even watch a few of his videos, what you're going to see is uh, what he is saying is that our use of fossil fuels has exactly the opposite effect as what uh, the narrative we're being told now is. And the narrative now says if we don't stop using fossil fuels, everybody dies, everything burns, we have to get rid of all the people on the planet, uh, we have to put masks on cows to contain their methane. Um, cows are no longer allowed to fart. As a matter of fact, we need to put hoses up their asses and pump them straight into our cars and immediately burn it, but then also capture the exhaust from the car because that's bad too. We have to do all that, otherwise we're all dead. Alex Epstein says, no, that's not true. We need to burn more fossil fuels. We need to make sure that there is nobody on this planet who is in energy poverty because uh, as history shows and statistics and data shows, uh, the more energy humans use, the more access to energy they have, the more they prosper and the more they flourish. And maybe we should be not making our goal to be net zero or um, to stop climate change. Maybe our goal as human beings should be to ensure humankind flourishes. Should that not be our goal? Of all of the things that we could advocate for, ending homelessness, ending world hunger, um, ensuring hum humankind flourishes and prospers, I would say that encompasses all of those things. Instead of that, our goal these days and the center of policy in our governments at every level is net zero. That makes zero sense. It would make sense if there was empirical data to show that 
the only way for humans to flourish was to be net zero. But the problem I have is that all of the evidence suggests entirely the opposite. All throughout history, as our energy consumption increases, our prosperity increases. And if all we've done to, to change things in the last thousand years is one degree of warming across the planet, which has not increased sea levels, by the way, um, because, well, I mean, melt an ice cube in a glass and you'll see why. Maybe that's a good thing. Is life better now than it was a thousand years ago? That's a hard yes. Things are much better. So we're being lied to all over the place. We're being lied to about our health. We're being lied to about how we should spend our money. Um, we're being lied to about politics, sometimes even in our own circle of friends. We're being lied to about the food we eat. And people are so scared of going against the status quo and not fitting in that they just go along with it. So there's a challenge. There's a challenge to our premier and to our government. If you want to be different, you say you want to be different. Are you going to do something different? Are you going to start speaking truths? I mean, Danielle Smith has talked about net zero. And I was under the impression from the way I interpreted it, that her, her uh, idea for net zero was that we could be, we could be laughing at everyone around us because if you calculate our uh, CO2 consumption here in Alberta and weigh that against our output, we're probably already net zero. As a matter of fact, we might actually absorb or be more of a carbon dioxide sink than we are a net emitter. So all these people who are talking about net zero and hate Alberta should be paying us because we're doing a really good job. I interpreted that as that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she does really believe that we need to be at net zero. But I have a hard time believing that because I know she's a smart lady. And I know that she knows that this whole idea of stopping fossil fuels and stopping all of our uh, CO2 emissions is the only way to save humanity. I know that she knows that's a lie. So I'm very curious to see if she's going to speak out and speak truth about that. You imagine if the premier of Alberta started saying things like, maybe we should be focusing on prospering. She has said that. Maybe we should be focusing on making sure that human beings flourish. And if that means using more energy, then we should use more energy because what's more important than human beings flourish? Wouldn't that be neat to hear a politician say something like that? Would you support that? I certainly would. I see the uh, the three letters popping up in the comments, WEF, 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 yes, WEF. That's another thing our premier spoke out about. She said that, uh, I can't remember her exact words, but it was pretty good. She said something like, why would we want the WEF involved in policy here in Alberta. It makes no sense. We don't elect them. We don't vote for them. We don't, they don't have any business here. They, they have nothing to do with Alberta. So why are they influencing policy? I mean, Klaus Schwab, the director of the WEF actually said and bragged about 
um, having influence in more than half of Justin Trudeau's cabinet. That's scary. A global organization that we don't elect with uh, ide ideology that says human beings are a virus on the planet and need to be removed, have influence and power within our government of the day, the liberal government. In uh, The WEF influences more than half of cabinet and probably a lot of the PCs and the NDP, maybe some of the UCP, I don't know. But at the very least, our premier has said that that has no business in this province. So we'll see how what goes with that. I would consider that a win because nobody else has really said it. I mean, Jason Kenney kind of poked fun at it and told, told our friend Jordan that he needed to drink less coffee if he thought that uh, the Great Reset was a real thing. But isn't that funny how uh, we only had to wait six months, and not even four months, to find out that, yes, the Great Reset is a thing, and it is in full swing. It's happening right now. So maybe Jordan should keep drinking coffee so he stays alert. Hey, Jordan. See, Jordan and I don't agree on everything either. But I still would call him my friend. Because we don't have to agree on everything. And I'm jealous that he's in Poland, and I'm not, because I want to go on vacation. You dink. Just kidding. We love you, buddy. <sighs> yeah. Uh, okay, so the Premier didn't fire all of AHS. She fired the board, which may have been a token spectacle to appease people. Uh, I think there's a lot more that need to be done. The senior bureaucracy has to go. The senior leadership has to go. Pretty much anybody left over from the Hinshaw and NDP era have to go, and they have to be replaced with new people. Because in a situation like this, if you leave even a little bit of the rotten apple there, guess what's going to happen? It's going to rot the rest of it. Huh. DeSantis said about the WF, their policies are dead on arrival in Florida. Good for him. That guy's awesome. I want to talk to that guy. I really do. Because we talk about politicians standing up and going against the status quo. That guy... Wow. He's got bigger balls than Margaret Thatcher. It's amazing. Notice how I didn't say Teresa Tam? Yeah. Apparently I'm not supposed to misgender. It's rude. We'll do it later. Okay, questions. Um, oh, another one we get. Uh, the premier is just the same. She hasn't fired all of the cabinet ministers who were in power when your restaurant got shut down, Chris. How can you be okay with that? Uh, I'm not. I want them to all be fired. Tar and feather. No, not tar and feather. I didn't realize how much of like tar and feathering is actually torture. Did you know that? Yeah. It's like boiling hot tar and then feathers. So yeah, we don't want to tar and feather people. Uh, let's go with honey and feathers because honey tastes good. I want them to all be honeyed and feathered for what they've done. But I also know that you cannot uh, take over leadership and government and immediately fire everybody and then go into an election. You can't do it. And yes, I know it's political. It's all a bunch of malarkey BS. Uh, I don't like it, but I understand it. I also understand now that uh, Minister Shandro and Minister Copping were all but completely insignificant. And if you talk to people who have had conversations with them, uh, specifically 
someone that Carrie and I just interviewed. I mean, the, you talk to these ministers and they basically tell you, well, we can only do so much. We're just, uh, you know, we're only here for a time and, you know, it's the bureaucracy and we can make suggestions, but we can't really do anything. And that's true. They're kind of like figureheads. I mean, they do have some power, but really at the end of the day, the power resides with us. It always has. It always will be. It always will be that way. Or no, I shouldn't say that. It still is right now. It may not be in the future if we don't exercise the power we have right now. How's that for you? So no, I don't like that uh, Chandra is still a minister. I don't like that Copping still a minister. I don't like it at all. But I understand it. And I'm, and I, I mean, it is what it is. So we'll see how it goes. <sighs> Huh. Somebody mentioned something about Daniel Smith uh, using some of these court cases to accomplish some of her goals. She's going to have some serious firepower once we get done in court. This is going to be amazing. It's, it's going to be absolutely awesome. Um, for, those of you that, for those of you that don't know, this all started for me by getting frustrated and I'm about to lose my business because of the restrictions. And I said, no, I, I'm not doing it. I'm opening my doors because... The government obviously doesn't know what they're doing. It was right after Hinshaw said, oh, you know, we were going to open you guys up, but we really, we can't right now. And we have no end in sight for the restrictions. I said, no, I have an end in sight and the end is tomorrow. And we opened our doors, opened my doors, didn't back down. Uh, Rebel Media stepped in and the Democracy Fund and they got me lawyers and made sure that I was taken care of in court. I continued to stay open. I never backed down, uh, ended up in jail for protesting. I did back down at that point because they made me sign release conditions saying I'd be a good boy and follow the rules. I signed them. I'm sorry. Wish I never did that. Anyway, that's the way it went. Um, fun fact, Pastor Tim Stevens, Pastor Jim Coates, they never signed those restrictions or those, those release conditions. Those men stayed in jail for weeks and weeks and weeks in a living hell because they wouldn't sacrifice the principles and sign those uh, bail conditions. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for those two men. Uh, so I am not in the same category. Uh, I wish I could say that, but I'm not. Anyway, I went to jail. Um, I've been in court. I've been fined. I got $20,000 in fines handed down to me. I was on probation for a while. Uh, my, my charter rights were actually infringed on by a judge and by the government, which was, uh, that's on the record in court. And I was compensated for it by having the rest of my probation, uh, uh, taken away and my fines dropped from 30,000 to 20,000. So very compassionate, very compassionate of the court. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you this is because I still haven't backed down. Uh, the restrictions are done, but I'm still in court as are a lot of other Albertans. And I'm back in court on January 16th and I won't back down. They offered me a deal. Can I talk about this? I don't know if I can talk about this. Hmm. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Anyway, they offered me a deal that my lawyers told me that I would be basically crazy not to take because the government gets a black eye. I stayed open for that long and I get this piddly little fine. It's like a speeding ticket, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going to court because what they did to us is wrong. I'm not backing down. Uh, I don't care what they throw at me and say, well, just, just take this settlement and we'll, we'll go. It's not happening. I want accountability. I want it on the record. I want it. I want precedent set so that nobody ever has to go through through this again. That's how this all started. 
um, I'm still not backing down. And that's exactly why I do these lives and why we do these interviews and try and get this information out there because it became, uh, <laughs> it was no longer about me. This was about the, the, the state of the province, the state of the country. And I became more than aware of the path that we were on and where we were going if we didn't stop it. So we're going to stop it, right? Right. <sighs> I'm going to try and get some more of these questions. I'm sorry. I just go off on rants and I. Uh... So Wayne says she a traitor who can't be trusted. Uh, Wayne, I don't know who you're talking about. We'll put it up in the comments and I will comment on it. That's bullshit. Yes. When the government infringes on your charter rights and your freedoms and your prosperity, and they don't have the justification to do so, it is absolute bullshit. P.S. There's still four men in court for protesting that bullshit, by the way. FYI information, just so you know. Yep. Ten months, four men in jail, no trial, no bail. You okay with that? I'm not. Okay. Glad you understand it, but I don't. Letting Chandra off the hook is a joke, Chris. He is guilty of murder and genocide. Well, first of all, nobody is guilty until they're proven to be guilty. So you can allege all you want. You can feel all you want. But the facts don't care about anybody's feelings, mine included. The facts are that people are innocent until proven guilty. And yes, I know how ironic it is to say that being treated as someone who's guilty uh, until I prove myself innocent. I get the irony there, but uh, that doesn't change the fact that that's how it works. So, you know, I believe that I would allege that some of these people are guilty in murder. Absolutely. State-sanctioned murder. And the corruption behind it goes much, much deeper. I mean, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, they're under investigation they're probably going to get charged. I hope they get charged because this is a group of lawyers uh, who have been controlling this organization that's supposed to protect us for like 40 or 50 years. The same family of lawyers. It's not doctors, it's lawyers. And their collaboration with the government and with AHS and, and what they did, how they conspired to, to do this to us, and silence those speaking out, there are some serious crimes there. And I'm sure, I am sure there's going to be some people going to jail. If there aren't, I would be very surprised. Um, but until that goes to court, I mean, what do you do? We can't, we can't ask for uh, the benefit of innocent until proven guilty for ourselves if we're not willing to extend it to others. Anyway... Uh, I, I'm not letting anybody off the hook, but I'm just saying that this is the positions they have right now, and there's nothing we can do about it at this point. Uh, P.S. The freedom-minded people who took over the UCP provincial board um, took over the finally took. I think they have control now, but as far as I'm aware, almost immediately after being elected into those positions, two of the nine resigned and took staff positions, paid staff positions, leaving a minority freedom-minded board within the UCP. 
Since then, we have seen the provincial nomination committee disqualify Nadine Wellwood from her um, uh, for her nomination for is it Livingston McLeod, I believe. The constituency, Livingston McLeod, I believe, uh, said they wanted Nadine Wellwood to be their representative uh, as an as a UCP MLA contestant. The provincial board or the nomination committee disqualified her because they don't like her opinions about COVID and vaccines and some other things. There's I'm, there's got to be more. I know you're going to say that. Uh, I don't know everything right now, but my point is the people said we want this person to represent us. A group of elites within the UCP said, no, you can't because we don't like your opinions. And then the provincial board of which everybody was so happy and so proud that we elected freedom-minded individuals to prevent this stuff upheld the decision of the nomination committee. So Nadine Wellwood is out because they don't like her opinions. Anyway, take that information for whatever you like. Uh, let's see if Wayne said something. Uh, lots of comments. That's awesome. Sorry, Wayne. I don't know who you're referring to, but uh, I'll, I'll keep watching for an answer. Do you think your oil patch history groomed this behavior? I suppose I'm a sum of my life experiences, if that's what you're asking. Um, my oil patch history gave me a unique insight into the energy industry that not a lot of people see. I think the most common image that people have when they hear about the oil patch is an image of an oil covered duck in a pond that's covered in oil. That's what a lot of people think. Um, oil is black and messy and sticky, so it's dirty and it must be bad, right? Well, back up a sec. Take a trip out to Oil Springs, Ontario, or Petrolia or Sarnia. Oil Springs, Ontario in Petrolia uh, was the birthplace of the oil patch, the birthplace globally of the oil patch. And it is beautiful there, but you wouldn't believe how they used to drill for oil. They would literally bend a tree over, tie a rope to the tree, have a chisel on it, and a man would kick uh, a pad, a driller's pad, and it would make the tree do this, and the chisel would hit the ground. So they would dig a little pit, you know, 10, 12, 14 feet deep, and then they'd rig up this chisel on a rope, and they would chisel, chisel down in the ground until oil came up. That's how they drilled for oil. And of course, the technology has evolved since then, but um, that that's how this started. It was originally people scooping oil off the ground. Uh, the it, it, uh, I believe it was the uh, Northern Ontario Indians that first discovered this, and they had been using it for centuries. And then European settlers came, and we started digging for oil. Then we started drilling for oil. Anyway, uh, this happened before machinery. It happened before... Well, we, we didn't have anything to put in machinery because we didn't have gasoline or oil yet. But all of a sudden, the oil patch was born in Ontario. And eventually, we get to the point where we're pumping oil out of the ground. Now, when they pumped oil out of the ground, they just let it run down a hill into a pond. And then they scooped it up and put it in barrels and put it on carts and took the barrels uh, in carts 
with horses down a road made of wood. That, that's how this started. But there was oil everywhere. At other times, they would drill right by the riverbanks because that's where they thought the oil was. It was always by a river. So when they struck oil, they would let the oil run into the river so the river could carry it downstream to the next town. Great idea. Let nature do the work for you, right? Probably not a good idea to do that. Uh, if you go to the museum there, you're going to see pictures of the river on fire when lightning struck it uh, at one point, maybe at multiple points. And so the entire river that was covered in oil was now a flaming disaster. And that's kind of how it went for quite a while. Um, when they were pumping oil out of the ground, they would allow a little bit to seep out the top of the gland nut so that it would keep everything lubricated and they would just pile straw beside the well so that it would absorb the oil. And then they would take the straw and use the straw to heat their homes, the oil-soaked straw. So if you go to Sarnia uh, Oil Springs, when you get out and walk around in the, ver in the world's first producing oil patch, which is still producing to this day, it smells like oil. There's oil everywhere. It's everywhere. The ground has been soaked with oil for 150 years. 150? Something like that. But it's the greenest place on the planet. Grass is growing. There's wildlife. It's absolutely beautiful. But there's oil everywhere. Now, you go to, uh, well, of course, I mean, you've seen the pictures of the lithium mines. You go see one of those, and there's nothing alive for miles around that. You go look at some place that had a, uh, a salt water spill. I mean, salt water looks clean. It's clear. Must be okay, right? No, it destroys everything. Methanol, same thing. Extremely toxic. Stays in the ground. Uh, doesn't disappear. Every time you use your winter washer fluid, you're spraying methanol on the ditches. Imagine how much methanol you're spraying every winter on the roads that get into crops and get into the ditches in Alberta. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of gallons of toxic, toxic stuff. And yet people think of oil uh, as a oil-covered duck in a, in, a, in a pond. Anyway, I say this because this insight that I have uh, showed me that the oil industry isn't as dirty as what people think it is. I mean, when we spill something, when we're working, we clean it up. When a pipeline ruptures and there's a spill, we clean it up. Oftentimes, we clean it up better than it was before. And I can say that because there are places where oil literally leaks out of the ground and we go clean it up. So it, it's not as bad as what people think it is, but they wouldn't know that unless they'd been in the industry. So yes, uh, my oil patch history um, did contribute to my, at least to my knowledge of how this stuff works. But even more than that, in my early oil, oil career, I was under the impression that CO2 was going to kill us. I thought CO2 was uh, going to burn the world down. Al Gore said so. He put a movie out. It must be real, right? But over the years, uh, I've watched what's going on. I'm paying attention to what's going on around me. Um, I'm looking at or, pay, or paying attention to uh, data from the past. And what I, I realized that this narrative that's being pushed on us is not accurate at all. And then I get an opportunity to hear someone like Alex Epstein speak. And it really ties some of these things in and solidifies my resolve in saying that our goal should be to ensure humans flourish. 
And whatever we have to do to make that happen, including using more fossil fuels, we should be doing that because that should be our goal. They're not the tar sands, Barb. They're oil sands. Tar and oil are two different things. How many dinosaurs were there? I don't know. Three? <laughs> I was actually... I went on a big rant about my oil patch experiences and Travis is saying, well, I was actually meaning your work ethic and stubbornness, but thanks. No, that's, uh, I'm Irish, Russian, and Scottish. So I'm extremely stubborn and I'm also very uh, internally conflicted. Uh, holy good grief, it's 1120. Uh, I'm going to take, I'm going to find two more questions here, answer them, and then I'm going to go to bed. Uh, Kenneth says it's H2S that will kill you. Yes, that's true. But if you're ever a 20 something year old roughneck and you had had chili in camp the night before and you had access to an H2S monitor, you might find that contained within your very body is levels of H2S that may drop a rhinoceros. Isn't that right, Tom? Yeah. You know who you are. Uh, then how come some died in tar pits? Some what? What died in tar pits? Uh, birds. Birds have died in oil sands, tailing ponds. Um, and actually one of the probably the most prominent examples there was actually there was a lot of birds that died in some open tailings ponds years ago and they put in some new technology since then but what happened is there was a failure in the bird deterrent system and the birds just flew right in they died it was horrible there was i think there was a few hundred birds but the world lost their collective minds about it and went on this huge campaign Neil Young said that the oil sands were like, Fort McMurray was like Hiroshima. How ignorant is that? And yeah, blown way out of proportion. Yes, it sucks that those birds died. Now put it in the context of what kills birds across the globe, and you quickly realize that that was nothing. The windmills in Alberta kill way more birds than the oil sands tailing ponds ever did and those same windmills contribute way less to human flourishing than the oil sands have so uh this is all about perspective people Oh no, he opened up the Tom gate. <laughs> oh yeah, good point, Johnny. Things have been dying in uh, tar pits for thousands of years because they get stuck. California's got tar pits that animals get stuck in all the time. And, you know, 
probably the ethical thing to do would be to clean them up, just like the oil sands. Yeah. If you don't like uh, heavy metals being leached into the Athabasca River, maybe we should go mine the riverbanks that are filled with oil that is naturally leaking into the river and has been for hundreds of I mean, thousands of years. Would that not be the ethical and responsible thing to do? Clean up that natural oil spill if you don't like the the oil in the river? It could also contribute to human flourishing. Uh, I, th I think that's actually all I got. I'm, uh, now I'm just playing with this black licorice and my eyes are getting heavy, so I should probably get to bed. But thanks for watching. I hope, uh, I hope I've cleared up some things. Um, I'm going to do some more of this stuff over the next few days with some guests. I've invited some folks, uh, who should be friends and should be unified in their resolve to do something great for this great province. I've invited them to be on a show and have a, a nice discussion and figure out how we can work together moving forward. So that'll be fun. Uh, I also noticed something very interesting. You may have as well. There was a nomination list for uh, candidates for Lacombe Pinoca for MLA. And it shows on their UCP, Jennifer Johnson, uh, I don't know who the NDP person is. Who cares? We're not elected them anyway. And then they have my name down as a WIPA candidate. And if you remember last summer, maybe it was the summer before, I actually said I was going to run as an MLA um, with WIPA, Wild Rose Independence Party of Alberta. But that idea kind of quickly went down the drain as WIPA was circling the drain. And I think they've done some stuff to fix their situation but now we're faced with two independence-minded parties both want to do exactly the same thing there's no reason for there to be two and the only reason why there is two is because somebody's ego doesn't allow them to work with other like-minded people because well it's got to be theirs so i won't be uh, seeking the nomination for that and uh, maybe I won't seek a nomination for anything because it's much more fun to be on the outside poking people in the eye uh, and free of all of the rules that you have to face when you're in that situation. <clears throat> so anyway, on that note, whip of folks, get your shit together. The Independence Party of Alberta has offered to merge and cooperate and work with you because you both want the same thing. If you don't, you're not only hurting yourself, those around you, but you're also hurting the province, which is not what you want to do. So uh, I would get your asses to the table and start having conversations again, if that's something you truly want, uh, to do something good for the people of Alberta. Anyway, time will tell. Poke the bears. Yes, poke, poke, poke. We're going to lose some fingers in the process, but... It is what it is. Uh, yeah, so you're welcome for the info on oil springs. I would encourage you guys, if you want to go and you 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 want to have an awesome vacation, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make people mad by saying this. If you're in the West, go to the East, go to Ontario, go visit Northwestern Ontario. Northwestern Ontario 
is the Alberta of Ontario. The people are awesome. They're just like us. Uh, they mostly have the same kind of ideas about things. They're very hospitable. Uh, hey, Welder Clint, thanks for letting us crash in your in your place there. And it's 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 gorgeous. Southwestern Ontario, same thing. Absolutely beautiful. And the birthplace of the oil patch. If you didn't know that, you know now. It was Ontario where the oil patch was born. As a matter of fact, the oil fields in Saudi Arabia were built by Canadians who learned how to do that in South, in uh, Ontario. We sent Canadians to Saudi Arabia to drill for oil. And we've been sending Canadians there ever since. We've been sending Canadians all over the world to show them, to teach them how to extract their natural resources and flourish. So that's something we can be extremely proud of. And that's something you can be proud of, Ontario. Uh, you were the birthplace of the oil patch. And don't ever let anybody tell you that that's a stain on your history because that is what happened in Ontario and, and the development of oil and gas in that province changed the course of humanity for the better. That's where it all started. So thank you, Ontario. But you know what? Well, Alberta's got it now. Yeah, we got it. Okay. Nate, everybody. See you tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. I started this live talking about my friend Armin Mueller who passed away. Uh, and I forgot to mention, the reason I have all that bison at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mira, Alberta right now is because that was one of the last things Armin did. Is he arranged to have a uh, great big huge 2,400 pound bison bull uh, butchered up in, 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 yes, AHS from an inspected facility. It's all in the up and up. Don't worry. And uh, yeah, he gave me a half of a bison bull. So the Whistle Stop Cafe, you're going to see bison on the menu for a couple weeks probably. And if you haven't tried it, man, you got to try it. It is absolutely delicious. Uh, can't wait to share it with you. Nate. Thanks, Armin.